certainly I want to give my appreciation to the Lord and His allowing me another time to stand before you this morning at Mount Carmel Church and to share with you some of the blessings of the Word of God. I hope this is a happy place as we gather together. Somebody might say, well, Brother Steve, what you're preaching is relevant. Well, I certainly hope it is. I believe the gospel is relevant. I believe gospel truths are applicable to each one of our lives today in which we live. Um, everything that we preach and teach, if it's in the power of the Holy Spirit, will certainly be applicable to you and your life and how you live. I want to share with you today uh, a subject that's on my mind in regards to a question that I want to ask myself, and maybe you can ask it for your own selves as well. The question I want to ask myself, speaking of relative, what's relative, it's a question that we often hear among circles of, of, of evangelical faith, and that is, when were you saved? Um, today, among the fundamentalists, that's a very popular question. They always want to know when you were saved. Well, I'm going to ask that myself this morning, and we'll trust the Word of God to answer the question, when was I saved? Now, I would like to bring a witness up here this morning. I would like to, if you don't mind, and I'd like to have him sit right over there. And I'm going to ask this witness um, this question. And I'm going to have this witness answer the question according to his word. Now, his name is the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to ask the Apostle Paul this morning when I was saved. When you were saved. When he was saved. And in doing so, it would help us understand, uh, you know, the mindset, not only of the Apostle, but also the Word of God. What does the Bible say concerning that great subject? Now, often, um, we talk about answering that maybe in two phases. Well, I'm going to leave it up to the Apostle this morning and what he thinks. But the first thing I would like to make sure we bring this witness before us and presenting this truth Make sure we got the right man. Because, you know, there's a lot of ministers today that are presenting a different gospel. And if I'm reminded properly by the words of the apostle, he said, uh, there, you know, there may be another gospel which is not another, he says. But there may be other fictitious uh, teachings that may resemble the gospel out there. So we want to be sure that we're on track and we have the proper gospel. There's social gospels today. There's political gospels today that are very much involved in trying to recover humanity's problems on the surface of things. You know, maybe, you know, my man win in Washington or, you know, create change, justice, social change, which is uh, all relatively good. And I might add that Christians affect, in, in essence, uh, everything around them. The world in which we live, very much influenced by Christianity and our virtues and our ethics and what we believe the Bible will teach, we, in effect, influence the world around us. But I want to talk about more than just a social gospel or a gospel that's involved in politics. I want to talk about the gospel of God. And these are the truths that I'm delighted in this morning, and I would present before you in terms of this great question. Now, speaking about the credentials of the Apostle Paul, we, uh, we want to ask him in terms of 
his uh, operandas, modus operandi, just how does he work? I mean, does he follow the general ABCs of modern evangelical fundamentalism? The ABCs, audience, buildings, and cash. And I don't think the Apostle Paul would agree with that. In fact, these are some of his credentials that I want to point out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just as a start. So seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. So the Apostle Paul is going to glory in something too. But I don't think it's the ABCs of modern Christianity. I believe it's more or less the ABCs of biblical Christianity. A, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ, which lives forever and ever, is one who's named Amen. The Amen, that's the way to pronounce it. The Amen. And he is the Amen because that word literally means verily or truly, trustworthy, faithful. When you say Amen to what the preacher says, that you're giving your consent, you're saying yes, that is trustworthy, that is a faithful saying, that is a true saying. Can you say Amen this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the author and the finisher that one which liveth and abideth forever. Can you say amen this morning with me? Amen. 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 You give your consent that the Lord Jesus Christ is all that He claims to be. He is amen. amen. All the promises of God are in Him. Amen. amen. They're true. And that's who the Apostle Paul, I believe, when he speaks about the ABCs, that's on his agenda. The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's the B stand for? Does it stand for buildings? No. It stands for the book. It stands for the Bible. It stands for the truth of God, which endureth forever. That word which is forever settled in heaven. Psalms 119 and 89. That word of the Lord which abideth. That word of the Lord which is true. It's that word in which He preaches. He declared, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He first appeared, excuse me, not when he first appeared, but along his ministry, appeared on various occasions to the apostle to give him courage, to tell him to be of good cheer. Why? Because you're going to preach the word before the kings of this earth, before Roman Caesars. And I believe he did just that. And so the Lord uh, used the apostle Paul to preach the gospel. But his credentials was, were not marked by a glorying after the flesh, as he says here. It's not after the flesh. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, but I'll glory also. He's speaking uh, facetiously, if you will. He's a little tongue-in-cheek here. You want, you want me to glory? I'll, I'll show you uh, the glory that I can speak of. He said, for ye suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. If for ye suffer, if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you in the face, I speak as concerning reproach. So he's contrasting himself with all these guys that are parading themselves around as ministers of the gospel that have never suffered the reproach, that have never borne the problems of uh, uh, associated with the infirmities and the afflictions of bearing the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, said, in the world you shall have tribulation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself bore tribulation, bore the reproach of the truth of God. 
And if we preach the same, if we stand for the same thing, then we'll bear the same. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He said in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they to see the favor of him? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. How? In what way? In labors, in stripes, in prisons more frequently, in deaths. In other words, he's been left for dead. You know, when the Apostle Paul went into each little town, when he was guided by God's Spirit to go and preach the gospel, you know, he first thing he'd want to know is not where the Motel 6 or the Hampton was, He'd want to know what the prisons were like because that's where he'd eventually end up. He was beaten with rods. He said, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, Painfulness and watchings often, and hunger and thirst. I'm going to just stop right there because he's done proven to me this morning that our witness truly is the Apostle Paul. And so let's get back to this point. The Apostle Paul, let me ask you a question. When were you saved? Well, number one, the Apostle Paul is inviting us to turn to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. These points I feel are so critical in understanding what the Bible teaches. That's why I, I, I reiterate the fact that it is relevant. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. This is one of the first scriptures I ever heard preached uh, from a primitive Baptist by the name of James Compton. And I was delighted to hear it. I was looking for this type of truth, if you will, for some eight years or more as I was scouring the countryside looking for churches trying to hear somebody preach on the doctrine of election. And Brother Jim got up in the pulpit the first time I ever entered Columbia, and he opened this book to 2 Timothy 1.9, and he quoted, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Paul, when were you saved? He used that word saved in this verse in context with from before the foundation of the world. And so, very easily said, if somebody ever asks you a question, like I'm asking Paul this morning, when were you saved? The answer is very easy. I was saved before the foundation of the world. Now, that's impossible. How in the world could that happen? You weren't around. You couldn't personally accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior. How could you... I mean, all the works of righteousness which you could do to earn your way into heaven, how in the world could you accomplish all that before you were born? But the answer is, I didn't. I didn't accomplish anything. It's not what I said. It's not what I did. It's what the Lord did. He did for me. But before the foundation of the world, He so designed a plan to save us from our sin, you see. And he did so from before the foundation of the world. Now, I want to bear in another witness to this truth. That's what Paul says. But I'm going to share with you a second witness, and that's found in 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's go to verse 18. 18, 19, and 20. These scriptures are important to understand the fact that our salvation originated, if you will, before the world began, before the mountains were cast, before the earth existed, before anybody was ever created as Adam and born into the world as you and I, 
before all the cosmos existed, God in His sovereign power and mind, that immutable mind designed to save us from our sin. And I think when we think about the scheme of salvation, we think about God's design in conveying to creatures such as you and I His attributes, if you will, to explain, to share who He is. Not that He's insufficient in any way, shape, or form. God is perfectly sufficient. He enjoyed the fellowship of His Son and the Holy Spirit from everlasting to everlasting without ever having created the universe and all the earth and all those that dwell therein. I mean, He was perfectly satisfied. But in His desire, if you will, to share His glory, to share the knowledge, to share His attributes of just how loving a Creator is, how compassionate a Creator, He so designed to save us from our sin. For as much as ye know, verse 18, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. And so the cost of redemption, as valuable as silver and gold are, yet they themselves are uh, completely in, unable to pay the ransom price for this so great a salvation. Neither could it be received by the tradition of your fathers. So there's no pedigree, there's no blood type, there's no name, there's no natural talents that you may receive from your parents. There's nothing that you inherited, naturally speaking, that could ever pay the price required of a sinner before a thrice holy God. The wages of sin is death, period. And there's nothing you can do to work that wage off. It would be impossible for you to try to earn your way into heaven's immortal glory. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so it must needs be in this scheme and design of eternal salvation from before the foundation of the world that he would plan to visit this old earth in a human body himself with his own precious blood and shed his blood on our behalf. And so, and here's the point I want to get to. Verily was foreordained, verse 20, before the foundation of the world. Now that word foreordained in the Greek literally means to love beforehand. So God set his affection and his love toward his people even before they were, they were born into this world. And he designed to save them. That's all that means now. So when I say when was I saved, I can say faithfully based on the word of God that I was saved from before the foundation of the world. Now, this is also given to us in another portion of the New Testament in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. This great plan and purpose of God is used with another word. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And so there we have another word that denotes the purposes of God in salvation of His people. He uses the word promise. Promise. God's promise. Not, your, not my promise, but God's promise. Now that promise is manifested in the Scriptures 
in a variety of ways, but it all reflects this great covenant of purpose or promise that God promised himself that he would save his people from before the world ever began. You know, that's very easy. Somebody asked you this morning from the evangelical fundamentalist area of our dear brothers and our dear friends, when you were saved, you can honestly say from the scriptures, I was saved from before the world began. I don't know if there's a better way of presenting yourself uh, in terms of what we here at Mount Carmel, Primitive Baptist Church, believe. Why, that's very easy. And just think of all the doors of opportunity that that answer may open for you in explaining what the scriptures teach. I always like to say that because it's not what we primitive Baptists believe, although we believe it. We believe what the Bible believes. Regardless of what I can do this morning, I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself. And I was saved, if you will, right from Paul's own lips before the foundation of the world. And that promise was given to us in Christ. Now, that promise, as I mentioned before, uh, is used throughout a variety of illustrations in the Old Testament and conveyed for us that way in the new. And I'll just give you this one scripture and we're going to go to the next question that I want to ask the apostle. But in Hebrews chapter 6, this scripture pertains to the promise that God gave. For when God made promise, verse 13 of Hebrews 6, to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And that makes sense. When you and I go into the court of law, if I had a stack of Bibles here, for the Apostle Paul to swear to, that would mean that he's swearing to something greater than himself, right? When we go into the court of law, we're going to swear by God because he's greater than ourselves. And what also that implies is if you, if you fail to tell the truth, then you're subject to the curse of that same God upon those who bear false witness. And that really revolves a whole lot around what the Lord Jesus Christ himself faced when he was in this time world experience, when he was approached by others, you know. And he said, you look to your own law. He basically said, look to the law. It's written in your law, he said, John chapter 5. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. He was telling them to look to their law because why did he say it that way? Because the law that they claimed to be on their side, they were doing wrongfully. They were bearing false witness against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. And by the way, those two references that he mentions that are found in the book of Deuteronomy, if you look at them, are very uh, amazing. Because if you bear false witness, and your witness is, and that, and that false witness is borne out, guess what happens? You bear the price. The same judgment that you saw upon that other one, you get. You see, that's a little different. That's like if you go in the court of law and you're trying to sue somebody and you're found out that you're bearing false witness, guess who gets sued? Guess who gets the punishment? Well, anyway, that scripture there in the book of Deuteronomy is really in the context of criminal offenses. And it's a very serious thing. And by the way, and that person who was found guilty by that two or three witnesses, the person who brought the charge against that person would be the person who would have to throw the first stone. There's not a lot of analogy there that goes uh, in terms of the, uh, the Lord's uh, experience. Also, for instance, the uh, woman taken in the very act of adultery. I don't know what the Lord wrote in the ground, right? But 
Let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And not one of them stood there. All those left. Jesus turned to that dear woman and said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But anyway, um, very important. God made a promise to Abraham, right? Which is a reflection of what He made in eternity past. He promised to us eternal life. But He swore by Himself because He could not swear by any greater. There was no sacrifice for the Lord to swear on, right? Because He's the greatest. So He swore by Himself. God's not lying. And, and that's another great scripture in the Old Testament. We're going to move on. In the, in the book of Numbers, it teaches that God is not a man that He should lie. He cannot lie. So God's promises are true and amen. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Amen. And all the promises of God are in Him. Amen. Alright, the Apostle Paul is here for us and I want to ask him a second question. When will you save? Oh, okay. Well, the answer is, it's obvious. I will save at the cross. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's go to the Apostle's words. That's before the book of Hebrews. 1 Timothy 1, written to a young man by the name of Timothy. The Apostle Paul is now going to answer this question for us. He said in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That He came into the world to save sinners. There's our word. When were you saved? I was saved at the cross. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. What's He talking about? He's talking about when the Lord Jesus Christ would become the Redeemer for His people. And then He would be nailed, if you will, to the cross. Nailed to the cross. That's an old Roman way of execution. It was a horrific way of dying. It was designed to last for over a week. The pain and the anguish that He suffered on the cross for you and I, He did so as a representative. The substitutionary death, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He died for us, that He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. He saved us at the cross. If somebody asks you the question, when were you saved? You can say, I was saved at the cross. Jesus saved me. He shed His blood without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's my hope, my everlasting hope, that I will be found in Him, that His blood has passed over my sins. And when I see Jesus... I shall see Him as He is, accepted. He'll, I'll be accepted in Him. Because why? Because He saved me from all my sins. How did He do it? He shed His blood on my behalf. Is there any more simpler message in the Gospel than that? That Jesus saved us from our sins. There's no doubt that why the Apostle Paul is saying this is a faithful thing. And it's worthy of all acceptation. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then He says this, a little caveat here, of whom I am chief. I like that. Because that doesn't exclude anybody here this morning that feels like they're so rotten, unworthy, unqualified, that my sin is so horrible that Jesus' blood could never do it, could never save such a person as I am. But the Apostle Paul, he's got you beat. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. And if he saved me, he'll save anybody who's a sinner. You see what I'm saying? 
that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. There's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse, you see. And so don't ever come before the Lord and cry foul, unfair, that your blood cannot help me. Oh, yes, it can. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin, not just some sin. And so, I'll ask another witness to give tribute to what the Apostle Paul says. It's an unlikely witness, very unlikely witness. And this witness is found at the very cross. The day in which the Lord was crucified, there was those who mocked Him. And one in particular among the chief priests that mocked ridiculed the Lord. Even if at this point the two thieves were both in the same teeth mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them. Both of them agreed with this one other mocker. And this one mocker, he said he saved others. But he himself, he cannot save. See, you know the Bible says that the wrath of men shall praise the Lord. You know that old soul that said that in a mockingly way? As he looked up at the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, hanging between heaven's pure world and this sin-cursed earth. you know that that phrase was absolutely correct? That he did save others. But yet he himself, he could not save. Do you know what he, I refer to that means? Because the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And he was faithful to the covenant promise that he shared before the foundation of the world in that holy trinity that I will save my people. I will save them. He would not stoop, although he could physically. He could have called on 12 legions of angels. He could have had them wiped off the face of the earth. He could have said, forget this. Let's close the door on humanity. Let's provide no hope of salvation. But he didn't do it. Because he's the amen of God. He's the faithful witness. He's true. He liveth forever and ever. And my word, he says, shall stand. I will have a people. I will save them to the uttermost. You see the Lord Jesus Christ? He drank the cup of the dregs of the wrath of God. He bore all of God's justice upon himself to save sinners such as you and I. That person who mocked the Lord his words were ever so true. But, let's ask the Lord another question. Excuse me. Let's ask Paul another, a third. I'm going to ask Paul a third question. Paul, when were you saved? Come on now. Give me the truth. When were you saved? Alright? I was saved when I was born again. Now that would be a true statement. That's the most obvious question excuse me, answer that we hear nowadays, but I'm going to say this, that it is a true statement, that it is a faithful statement. I was saved when I was born again. Well, Paul, do you have a text for that? Do you have a word that conveys that for us today? Yeah, the witness is found in the book of Titus. Here we go back to the book of Titus, chapter 3 and verse 5. He says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. How did He do it? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. We were saved when we were born again. Now we have another witness to that effect. Jesus, the Lord Himself, He said He, he came down to this earth, right? He didn't come down to this earth to, to judge the world. 
but that the world through him might be what? Saved. John chapter 3, in the context of speaking to Nicodemus in a conversation about the new birth, about regeneration. The same way. So you can honestly say, and faithfully say, and you can agree with the Apostle Paul this morning, that when you were saved, the answer is easy. When I was born from above. When the Lord God, by His own power, without the help of man, without my help, while I was dead in trespasses and sins, quickened me by His sovereign grace and by His sovereign power. You know what's really neat as we reflect back on that work of regeneration? Somebody says, well... You know, I didn't see the great light. I didn't fall from my horse. I wasn't blinded. I didn't feel no big bang in my heart. Well, listen. You know, the self-same spirit that was involved in regeneration is the same spirit today that's in your heart when you agree with the things from the Word of God. Amen. That still, small voice. It's the same spirit of God. The same effect. The same produce that you feel every day as a Christian, your need to go to church, your need to study the Bible, your conscience speaking to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, what to do, what not to do. The same still small voice was in the power of regeneration, separating you, if you will, from your mother's womb by God's marvelous grace. In other words, separating you from your first father, if you will, Adam, and giving you the grace of God by borning you again and you becoming a child of God, a son and a daughter of God Almighty. So when were you born again? I was born again. When the Lord Jesus Christ quickened me by His voice, the voice of the Son of God. Not the voice of the preacher, not the words of the gospel, not the written Bible, but the voice of the Son of God. Without agency, by the power of Himself, irresistible. You can put up a lot of fights when it comes to the Almighty. You can argue. You can debate. You can speak against as the children of Israel did back in the Old Testament. You can speak against. But you'll never, a sinner can never speak against that word in the power of the Holy Spirit when He comes to open your heart, to change that heart of stone to a heart of flesh. <clears throat> We're going to move on because I got some more questions. The yes and the apostle. I could hang around there for a while, but it wasn't long ago that we kind of worked on that great subject of regeneration, and it took us quite a long time to get through it all. So I know you don't have all day today. Is your watch stuck on ten thirty? Okay, number four. When? When? If I may ask the Apostle Paul, when were you saved? Well, I'm saved right now. Okay, I was saved from before the world began. I was saved at the cross. I was saved at regeneration. And I'm saved right now. Watch this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the one I'm talking about when I spoke about relativity. Is the gospel relative to us today? Certainly it is. In fact, everything we've said up to this point is, is, is as important as what I'm going to say right now. So I'm going to ask the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 2 to explain what he means. What do you mean, the Apostle? Well, he said, I'll let him speak for himself. Moreover, brethren, now notice who he's talking to. 
The gospel is written to the children of God. The children of God are interested in the Bible. Remember the ABCs of your faith. The Alpha, the Amen, the Book. And I mentioned the city that I the church. The congregation of the righteous. The church of God. Where these things are manifested and made known. The mystery of the kingdom. Notice, watch. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. So he's got evidence. Obviously, he spent, uh, what, 18 months in Corinth preaching the gospel? Ran out of there, wasn't he? Ran out of there by the skin of his teeth. They would have had him hung and, and, and tarred and feathered if, if, if it wasn't for the grace of God. Now remember now, the Lord Jesus Christ told the apostle, he can bear witness to this, and he's going to bear witness to me in Rome. And so he's not going to get ended up in Corinth. However, the Lord told him on several occasions, be courageous, be courageous. You know, sometimes I want more than that. You know, the difficulties of the way. You need something more than that. But what does the Lord tell you? He said, be courageous. Be a good chill, cheer. I've overcome the world. Okay. By which also ye are saved. There's what we want to get to. In other words, you're saved right now. How? Well, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Here you are. You're walking around in this sin-cursed earth. The culture is invading your privacy. I mean, you can't go on television without seeing something you just detest. It's constantly moving into your own domain. Your bubble's hot. There's no privacy anymore in terms of your Christian faith. I mean, they're invading your sanctification. How will I survive in this world in which I live? Keep in memory what I preached unto you. Amen. Do the things that I taught you to do. Hold fast to the Word. In fact, that word there, keep in memory, in your center column reference, says hold fast. You're on the college campus. Everybody wants to do one thing. You're being tempted in ways that mom and pop never ask. I mean, this is a different world you're finding yourself in. How am I going to save myself? The Bible says keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. One of the songs that we read, excuse me, sung this morning, mentioned uh, keeping yourself in that... Uh, I forgot what it was, but keeping yourself. We're to keep in memory, keep, hold fast to the things that our parents have taught us from the Word of God. Timothy was uh, brought up and nurtured by his parents, um, his mother, his grandmother, and things of the Lord. And Paul told him, these things will make you wise unto salvation. What kind of salvation? Your deliverance. Keep in memory and you'll be saved. Now literally in the Greek, if we're going to parse a little bit, as we shared with Catherine, uh, this week, we're, we're parsing words, Greek words, you know. I, now, I, I, let me say this, because, you know, a lot of old-time preachers will have a tendency um, to criticize those who use the Greek. A lot of our younger ministers today will use Greek in the explanation of the color or the illustration of a word. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, things have changed in 30 years. I mean, things have changed. You know, Brother Compton, when he was 90 something, 99 years old, he would go to the hardware store at Home Depot and buy a new uh, drill or a new tool for his shop. He was always interested in modern advances. But if you guys still want to use a hand brace, drilling a hole in a 2x4, I'm going to let that leave that up to you. 
But I'd like to show you that you can get a 110 volt power electric drill that will go right through that 2x4. And you know, when I used explanations and Greek definitions and words and de defining things, I'm just using uh, things today that are provided you and I, tools that our ancestors did not have the luxury of. That's all. But if you want to still use a hand brace or a chisel, I'm going to have my electric power drill and enjoy it, okay? So anyway, if I'm looking at this, ye are saved, it's a one single word in the Greek. And it literally means, if it was an exact transliteration, it would be, you are being saved. The verb tenses in the Greek actually convey more than the English. Now in the English, it's just past, present, and future in terms of the time. In the Greek, the verb denotes something else. Not only the time of it, but the action of it. How it works. And Paul is basically saying, from the Greek, if you will, the Koine Greek of the day, he's saying, if you keep in memory the things I preach to you, you will be saved right now. That's all he's saying. There's a salvation right now for us. So if somebody asks you the question, are you saved? You can say, I'm being saved right now. How? By believing the Lord Jesus Christ and keeping His Word. And so ye are saved right now. That idea, it's indicative, which means it's a statement of fact. The mood is, if I remember this right in my studies, it's a, a middle voice, which means that the subject bears the consequence of his action. In other words, you have the promise that you will be saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. That's all it says. In other words, it's ongoing. It's not something that is done now and not tomorrow. It's ongoing and continual in the idea of the verb in Greek. It's like a, like a bicycle that's being used. You see it in your mind? You're pedaling fast. You never stop pedaling when it comes to the... Uh, salvation that is in the gospel. And so we can ask, uh, answer the question this morning by we are saved by keeping in memory that which we're, we learn and we believe lest we have done so in vain. And there's many of God's children that have believed in vain, haven't they? I've been places in my life where all that I've studied and all that i believed in was in vain. You know why? Because I forgot that I was purged from my sins. Do you know why? Because I turned my back on the Lord. There are many times in my life that I've had to ask the Lord, Jesus, forgive me for the sin that I've done. Since becoming a Christian, I can't even remember the sins before that. It's the sins after that really count. Lord Jesus, save me. I've let the Lord down many times. But He continually tells me that I am His. That His blood cleanses me from all sin. Well, let's move on because we have the Apostle Peter who wants to bear witness to this. And by the way, this, this timely salvation, this gospel salvation, this now salvation, it's all through the New Testament. And it's used in the Old Testament as too. In fact, we can go to the Old Testament, but... Actually, let's, let's just try that anyway. Let's try 
going to the Old Testament and the New in one place. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. We're talking about a salvation that is occurring now. We bear witness to that through the Apostle Peter's word. And we have 10 minutes left. So I'm going to use my time wisely. Verse 20 says, Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So you don't need any explanation. You know what we're talking about. It said, While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls. How many? Eight souls. You got Noah. You got his wife. You got his three sons and the three daughters. What a blessed family, huh? Would you say they were blessed? From among all the children on the earth, on the face of the earth, I'd say they were they were blessed. He said, "Wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." Now, there's the Old Testament illustration I talked about. Remember, the Old Testament is symbolic in nature. We mentioned that a few weeks ago. The Old Testament is full of pictures, and well, here we have the anti-type right here that's being conveyed for us. The Apostle Peter is drawing our minds to something. He's saying that those eight souls were saved or they were delivered by water. Now, it's interesting because he's not talking about... Uh, he's not conveying the idea that we're eternally saved through water. But he is drawing our minds to an analogy or a figure. Actually, let's read the next verse. The light figure... So he's coming right out of the box so that you don't understand, or excuse me, misunderstand this. In other words, he's presenting a figure for us of Noah, the ark, the eight souls, saved by water. They were saved by water because that water was used to wipe away, with a cleansing effect, the pollution of the world. That's what he's referring to. That that water acted as a salvation for those souls in delivering them from an untoward generation, a wicked generation, a generation that despised the truth and despised the preacher of righteousness. But they were saved by that water. That same water, by the way, which wiped away the filthiness of that time world, also saved Noah and his family by propping them up in that boat and washing away all that um, evil if you will. That like figure, now it's a figure. In what way is it a figure? Wherein to even baptism now also. Doth also now save us. So that word now really is used to convey that there's a contrast between what happened then and what happens now. In other words, there's contrast and comparison. Uh, in other words, I could just say, well, it's a now salvation in terms of a timely salvation or a timely deliverance, but the, the idea I believe the Apostle is trying to convey here is what went on back then is, is continuing on today in a figure, if you will. That the like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. And then he says, in, in parentheses, he says, not the putting away of the filth of flesh. In other words, he's laying, he's underlying an important point for you to know that the cleansing or the washing of baptism has got nothing to do with cleaning your dirty body physically. I think primarily that's what he's speaking about. But it's an answer of God. It's an answer, excuse me, of a good conscience toward God. That's what I meant. In other words, baptism, when somebody joins a church and is baptized into the body of Christ, becomes a member of the church, 
they're answering a question. And that question is answered toward God. It's not toward the minister. It's not toward the church. You know, it's important that you note that, that a true baptism conveys the idea of identification with Christ. I want to be numbered with Him among God's people. It's important. But you can't force that on anybody. You can force it physically. You can do it if they're infants in a different denomination. But in terms of a conscience, you see, it's the answer of a good conscience. In other words, an awakened child of God. A true awakened child of God will answer the question by scriptural methods and be numbered with the, uh, their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's the idea is really a theme that is presented by the Apostle Peter throughout this book of his. It's a theme. For instance, he says, verse 22 of chapter 1, Seeing ye have obeyed, to me, purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. You see the connection? You see the connection between obedience, sanctification, purification, and the brethren? When you're baptized, you're identified with Christ, but you're among the brethren. You're seeing the brethren. You're identifying yourself with the brethren. It's an identification process, if you will, that I want to be like Christ in scriptural baptism. I want to be numbered with the people of God at a certain church. I want to be baptized into the faith once delivered unto the saints. That's what it's about. It's an answer. But what's the question? Well, the question is easy. Do you believe in Jesus? The question is, do I want to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will. I want to be delivered by Christ. I want to be truthful to the gospel. I want to be obedient. I want to see my soul purified in obeying the truth. That's what he's talking about. Seeing you have purified your souls in what? In obeying the truth. It's obedience. And you could say that baptism, which doth now save us, is an act of obedience, scriptural obedience. Um... And, uh, well, let's move on because I'm going to, I better hold off right there. By the way, that word save, doth also now save us, is a continual thing right now. Even for those of us who were already previously baptized. Because we reflect upon that. We reflect, we look back at that. And we remember that. You know, part of our being delivered from sins right now is remembering what the Apostle Paul preached to us. Remember, keep in memory the things which he preached to us. Keep in memory what we've committed ourselves. I'm persuaded that he is able to do what? To keep that which I committed unto him against that debt. And see, there's this newfound relationship. I am the Lord's and he is mine. I serve Him, I love Him, I'm obedient to Him. And those things have a way of bringing our minds recall. Recall. Okay, one last salvation. I've talked to you about um, four already. So let me ask the Apostle Paul one more time, if you will. Maybe there's more. I'm sure you can come up with some more. I've just come up with five today. Five phases of salvation. Every one is going to be correct. But the last one is something to be noteworthy. Because a lot of times we leave off with this last one. The last one is very sobering. The last one is very critical. 
The last one of which I speak is very, very important in understanding the depth and the gravity from which we were saved. Now let me ask the apostle, when were you saved? When? And the answer is this. He says, now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. You see, he's talking about something yet future. He might refer to it in another place by the glorious liberty of the sons of God. But he's talking about a salvation that is not yet arrived. A future salvation, if you will. We're saved from something. It's important now to convey this because, as I mentioned earlier, that the social gospel of change in our day and age, there is a salvation, and it's a salvation from human lostness to get you back on the right path, how to treat people, and all this is well and good. But they leave off what the gospel teaches. And the gospel of the Son of God teaches us that we're saved from the wrath to come. As difficult a subject that is, we must recognize that it, salvation in the Bible speaks about a salvation from which we're saved from something, and that's the wrath of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, here another text in which the apostle here is reminding me of. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. He says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some years ago, I preached a sermon, or a series of sermons on eternal judgment. And there were some old Baptists who were visiting from Virginia. And when I hit on those subjects, I could tell I lost them. They never came back. You know, a minister of God, he needs to know that he's to preach the whole counsel of God. Can't leave off with the things that people may not be too likable to. And I look back at that particular time and I ask myself, could I have said it a different way? Could I have said and preached a different way about the great subject of the judgment of God? And my answer is this. If I had to do it all over again, I would do it the exact same. Because if I'm true to my calling, then I must preach and declare the truth of God. That there is a wrath yet to come. Now there's two things I believe that will help you and I when we consider this great subject of the wrath of God. Two things. Number one, you keep in mind the cross. Because there you see the wrath of God poured out without alleviation upon His own Son. God didn't hold back anything. <clears throat> it's hard for us to understand how the Lord Jesus in our weakness understand how the Lord Jesus suffered what is an equivalent to an eternal hell on a cross. Let me go to Book of Psalms real quick and we'll move very fast. I'll just read it, try not to comment. Psalm 75 to try to help you identify what I'm going to refer to here shortly in the book of Revelation. Chapter uh, 75 of the Book of Psalms in verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. You know, all often want to know what that cup is. What's the cup of which he mentioned there in that great agony, in the passion, in the garden, that cup he spoke of. The hand of the Lord, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. 
it is full of mixture. It's full. In other words, there's no alleviation of the degree of the mixture in that cup. It's full. It's not weakened in any sense. He said, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. So when we think about the wrath and the indignation of God upon sin, we think about the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ drank the full cup of His Father's indignation for the penalty of our sin, which was laid upon Him without alleviation. When they offered Him something to drink, He wouldn't have it to alleviate the pain, the physical pain upon which He was enduring. He took upon there at the cross the full measure without alleviation of the dregs of the wrath of God. There in the book of Psalms, it's referring to another cup that will be played out upon the wicked. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 14, we read of a salvation that we're delivered from. Yet, it speaks in details about something which is yet to take place. In Revelation chapter 14, and verse 10, the scripture says, And the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. There is a cup. And, it's, and what's in that cup is red. It's the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture unto the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now the second thing of which I want you to remember about when you, in terms of the wrath and the judgment which is yet to come, not only the cross, but also this very important fact, that you are a child of God's redeeming grace. And that we've been delivered. And if you believe what Jesus said concerning you, then it's all right. You see, you're not mentioned in this text in chapter 14. This wrath, this cup that is poured out, is poured out upon the wicked. You're not mentioned there. You're mentioned earlier in the chapter. He said, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. This is figurative language. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now he's talking about somebody else over here. The children of God are numbered there in the tenth verse. He's speaking about those who follow, whose image of the beast is upon their forehead, in whom they worship. We're talking about the wicked who worship the false beast, who worship the red dragon, who worship Satan, who worship the world, who worship the image, you see. Here, we're talking about an indignation that's poured out upon the wicked. And neat, look notice this, in the presence of of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You see, the Lamb will see that cup. When you think about the wrath of God and how intense it is, you think about the cross and that the God the Father poured out upon His own Son. Now, let me ask. If we must answer for our own sin, then we must pay for it equivalent to what our Lord Himself endured on the cross. Now, I pray and I hope that I'm saved from the wrath to come. But, if I am deceived, 
And I must answer for my own sin. I will, and I want to proclaim and declare this right now. I will, I believe, I hope I'll be able to say, that I stand on the right-hand side of God's holy and righteous judgments. I will cry out, true and righteous are your judgments against my own sin in that day. Because sin mars the holiness, the goodness of God. Sin rebels against the holiness of the Creator. And I'm merely a creature. But I pray that by God's almighty grace that I've been delivered, that I've been saved from the wrath to come. It's coming. Just as sure as the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world, born of a virgin, died on the Calvary's mountain, He's coming again. And He will pour out His wrath upon the wicked. But He's doing it in the presence of angels. In the presence of angels. The angels are scattered, you know, wherever I go, it's in the presence of angels. The Bible teaches about the angels are right here, hovering, watching you women, if in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The angels are in the presence of the ministry who take up their banner, not to show partiality among men. In other words, not to be, um, you know, Bias in their prejudices among men. The Bible says that he gave that charge to Timothy in the presence of angels. Angels. They were on the Mount Sinai when God delivered the law. And they were there ministering to Jesus after he was tempted in the wilderness 40 days. They are ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. They are around us. They are watching us. They are seeing us. They're watching what we do. They marvel that the sons of Adam serve the Lord God. The book of Revelation is a fantastic book. There's great themes in the book of Revelation. Themes of the sovereignty of God. Portrayed in the throne room of God. There's themes of God's victory and triumph over the great red dragon, over sin, over Satan, over death, by that one who has the keys of death and hell in his hand. He can open doors that no man can shut. He can shut them which no man can open. The Lord Jesus Christ, triumph, triumphant, the victor. Is that neat? Another thing, though. These themes run, recur over and over again in stages and cycles. Of the judgment of God. That's what Revelation is really about. About the judgment of God upon sin. You know, I, I, I know that among many of our brethren, they, they surmise the book of Revelation, two words, you know, we win. But I find that very simplistic and very off the mark when it, in terms of the true themes of the book of Revelation. Very powerful images that God is in control no matter how dismal this world is. It's interesting to know that we look back in the Old Testament that there was a priest on the sides of a certain river that was totally in in despondency and terrible distress when he looked at the people of God being carried away in Babylon. I mean, everything was gone, forsaken, captivity surrounded this priest. But that priest, whose name was Ezekiel, had a vision of the throne of God. And what did he see? He saw God Almighty, if you will, sitting 
on the throne. And no matter how bad it gets, I want you to know, no matter how rotten it looks, God is on the throne. He's not going to abrogate the throne. He remains on the throne. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So these are the themes in the book of Revelation. But one more theme, and I'll leave you with this. One of the greatest themes in the book of Revelation as we see God's people in heaven. They're worshiping. Worship. What you're doing this morning is worshiping the Creator. You're presenting yourself a living sacrifice, holy unto God. You are worshiping God. You're adoring God with the 24 elders. Not 12, but the 24. Got the 12 of the old and the 12 of the new together because we're all one family. The church of the firstborn in heaven. All God's sons and daughters together in heaven. The marriage of the Lamb, if you will. Brought together in one beautiful common fellowship of unity. Worshiping the Creator. It will be a magnificent experience. One that will be forever and ever. That little phrase, forever and ever, in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible, denotes wonderful things. It denotes how long God lives. He lives forever and ever. It denotes the fact of how long we live. We live forever and ever. But soberly, it also reflects the judgment of the wicked will be forever and ever. When you see those truths, you'll worship God. Amen. When you see it, when you realize what I'm talking about, you'll be a worshiper. In truth and in spirit, may the Lord bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.